Hey everybody, welcome to JPD Weekly. Revelation 4 and 5, probably a couple of the most enigmatic and strange uh, passages, chapters in the book of Revelation. We're going to unravel all this today. Is this a picture of the rapture? Who are the 24 elders? What is the sea of glass in front of the throne of God? We have so much to talk about and even less time to do it in. So welcome to today's JPD Weekly. Hope you have all had a great holiday season. Hope you are doing well. Uh, before we get started, I want I want to give a brief introduction to this topic. So, as many of you know, we have been uh, talking about uh, rapture type things on the Sharpening Report, which is another show that we offer here on Daily Renegade. Which, by the way, you can have full access to full episodes with uh, amazing interviews from people like Dr. Michael Brown, uh, Jay McCarl from Before the Wrath, who we just recently had on. You get the full interview at dailyrenegade.com. So make sure you go to dailyrenegade.com and become a member today. Uh, we have five different shows right now and more coming, and every show is loaded with uh, full episodes that you can't get anywhere else. It's a great deal. You can't get this anywhere else. Dailyrenegade.com is the place to go. Uh, but at the Sharpening Report and here on GPD Weekly, we've been talking a little bit about uh, the rapture. And so, of course, I wanted to get into Revelation 4 and a little bit of Revelation 5. Uh, but not only the rapture. Um, you know, I don't want to just say that, you know, John being caught up to heaven, that's the rapture, and then we don't have to think about it anymore. There's obviously a lot more mysterious things going on here, and a lot more rapture evidence that uh, you probably haven't heard anywhere else. Um, and if you have, then you're one of the very few. So I wanted to get into all that because it's it's really interesting and some of these verses are used by people of all different rapture beliefs to promote their uh, beliefs. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about which uh, rapture belief seems to encompass all of these things uh, together the best, especially when it comes to the 24 elders. Did you know that you could actually find out which rapture view is correct based on the identity of the 24 elders? Uh, that is something really interesting. So we're going to have to talk about that. Um, now, there are uh, comparisons between Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. That's why these two chapters really go hand in hand. Uh, so Revelation 4 is based on the Father. The Father is the focal point there, whereas Revelation 5, the Son, uh, Jesus, is the focal point. So you have Yahweh in Revelation 4 and Yeshua in Revelation 5. Uh, even the roles of the, the these members of the Trinity uh, are discussed. So in Revelation 4, you have uh, God as creator. Revelation 5, you have God as redeemer, uh, which is interesting. And then even the reasons for their worship, why they're being worshipped, or or what they're being given credit for, uh, ha has a bit of a contrast here in Revelation four and five. So in Revelation four, you have God's role in creation. That's from four uh, eleven, verse eleven, and then in Revelation five, you have His role in redemption, Jesus' role in redemption. So that's uh, chapter five, um, verses nine and verses twelve. Now, through God. We have creation itself, and through God, we have redemption itself. So these judgments throughout the book of Revelation are so severe, and you hear this from uh, atheists. Sometimes you even hear this from Christians, but you mainly hear this from atheists or you know New Agers or something like that. But uh, the the judgments throughout Revelation are so severe that some people think that God is actually cruel for inflicting suffering such as this. But as we read, uh, as Jesus takes the scroll with the seven seals, Jesus is the one worthy to do this. His judgment is just and fair. Our judgment, human judgment, is not. Uh, so that's what makes Jesus the perfect candidate for this. Because not only is he fully man, but he's fully God. Uh, this world and its inhabitants are God's creation, not our own. And this is the way that God has decided that it needs to be judged, just as he decided it would be through the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
that those who accept him will be redeemed. Now, it would be unjust for us to think that we know better how God should handle his creation when we ourselves are that very creation. You know, who, who are we to think that we know better? You know, our reason, our logic, our intellect, everything that we use to make these kinds of determinations or to even have these thoughts comes from God himself. You know, he's the one that created our minds, our spirits, our souls, our brains. And so if we're going to use that intellect to decide that we would know how to do things better. And you see, you see a lot of this from atheist camps. You know, they'll, they'll say if, if God is real, he's a monster, he's cruel, but they're missing a, a key point there. They're missing a point. If God is real, God is all powerful. If God is real, if, if we're going to, if we're going to entertain that possibility, then you have to take it all the way. You have to, you have to entertain that it's the God of the Bible that we're talking about. The all powerful, all knowing, righteous judge of the Bible, God of the Bible. Yet many atheists want to leave that out when they make their uh, claims that that he is some kind of monster or he's, he's defective in some way. Yet if it's the God of the Bible that we're talking about, then he is the one that created everything, including our own intellect. So they have they have uh, a, a, a inconsistency there. They have an internal inconsistency in their argument. On one hand, they want to deny uh, the the omnipotence of God. They want to de- deny his all-knowingness, yet they want to claim that through his all-knowingness, through his all-powerfulness, the way that he judges his creation is somehow wrong. So they have a problem there in their own argument. It's self-refuting. Um, yet... They, these things that we use to, you know, make judgment calls, to determine what's fair, what's not, you know, our reason, logic, and intellect, all of those things, according to the Bible, have been deeply affected by sin. So again, if we're going to take this whole example, you know, uh, if, if God is real, like the atheists would say, some of them, if God is real, he's cruel and unjust. Well, you have to take that example all the way. If he's real, he also created your intellect, your reason that is uh, that you're using to make that determination. And if he's real, then sin is real as well. If the God of the Bible is real, the Bible is real. And if the Bible is real, then we all have a sin nature and we uh, all of our judgments are clouded. It is impossible for us as human uh, fallen beings to judge righteously while we're in our fallen state. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. God himself throughout the Bible teaches that. That was the whole reason for uh, Jesus in the first place. That's why we have to look to a perfect judge, Jesus Christ, uh, to handle this for us. So that, that's kind of a backdrop of what we're looking at in Revelation 4 and 5. So there are three parts to the book of Revelation. And uh, one of them, the, the first one that we'll look at is the command to enter heaven. And we get that right in the very first verse. Uh, so we can read that here. Uh, I'm reading from the ESV. This is uh, Bible Gateway. Some of the quotes that we're going to be looking at today, I'll read from other Bible versions, but this one, we're just going to look at the ESV. It says, After I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So that is the command to enter heaven. That's the first part of how this uh, chapter is broken down. The second part is things seen in heaven. This is uh, chapter 4, again, because that's the chapter we're looking at right now, verses 2 through 8. Uh, and we can just read that uh, real quickly here. And we're, we're, we're picking up over here in 2. Uh, you know what? Let me see if I can, uh, let me see if there's a way that I can make this a little bit bigger so you can see what I'm looking at. Let's see. It's probably a little bit easier to read if we zoom in some. All right. So uh, starting at verse 2, it says, and we're right here. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, excuse me, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders. 
clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. In today's JPD Weekly, we are going to get into all of these. We're going to get into who the 24 elders are, what that sea of glass is all about. Uh, We're going to look at these lamps and how that actually shows how one of the rapture views is is probably correct. Uh, Continuing on, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So that's the thing seen in heaven. That's that's like part two of chapter four. And then part three is the song in heaven, which is verses nine through 11. And we read that here, starting in verse nine. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So that gives us the three basic parts of chapter four. And uh, believe it or not, that is the whole chapter. There isn't very much to it. It's only 11 verses. Uh, And while it doesn't seem like there's much to it in terms of text, there is a ton of meaning uh, in in this chapter. Now, this command to enter heaven is split up into fir- into two parts. Uh, so from the first verse here, uh, we, we see, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard, speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what, may, m- m- what must take place after this. So we have two parts here. There's first a vision, and second, there's uh, a voice that makes a command. So again, we just, we just read all that. The first voice which he heard speaking like a trumpet, come up here. Now that's what's, that's really interesting there. That phrase, come up here in Greek, it's what's called an imperative, meaning it's a command. It's not a suggestion. Uh, and it's, it's a command. And we would assume when the rapture happens, when we're caught up, we would hear that same command. Now, some people wonder if this verse here is a picture of the rapture because we're told that we too will hear a voice as well as, uh, you know, at the last trump and we will be raptured. But is Revelation 4.1 specifically giving us a glimpse of the rapture? It actually depends on how we look at it. It's not as simple as to say yes or no. And, and usually that's what you hear uh, online today on, on a lot of uh, so-called prophecy expert shows. You know, you'll, you'll hear it's, it's either absolutely yes if they're pre-trip, absolutely no if they're post-trip. There's a little more nuance to it than that. So in one sense, we would say that this is not the rapture because we don't see the whole church being taken up to heaven here. It's only John, as far as we can tell. And it's in the first century. It's, it's sort of like how Enoch and Elijah uh, being taken was not the rapture exactly, but it still occurred for God's purposes. So in that sense, we would say Revelation 4.1 was a specific event designed for John to give him a message to bring to the rest of the church. And of course, we have many examples of these types of things. Uh, not all are exactly alike. They all have some differences, whereas uh, the rapture will be the same for all Christians. So these aren't the rapture technically, these, these examples that we're going to look at, but we get the sense from these examples that they are related in some way. So among among the uh, biblical examples that we get from this kind of thing, we have Enoch who was with God and then he was not. We get that from Genesis 5. It seems like he was taken up in some way. Elijah from 2 Kings 2, he was taken up in a whirlwind. Uh, we, get, uh, we get this even from Jesus, his ascension, Acts 1.11 and Revelation 12.5. 
Uh, Philip in Acts 8, 39. Uh, Paul from 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 4. John, again, what we, what we're looking at today, Revelation 4, 1 through 2. And even the two witnesses in Revelation 11. Now, you can find differences in all of these. There are little minor differences. Uh, but it does show us that this idea of human beings being called up out of nowhere, it's not foreign to the Bible at all. It's actually kind of common. Because uh, we have at least these seven examples of this happening with individuals throughout the Bible. So when someone says that there's no biblical precedent for a rapture found in the Bible, this is how you can know that they're really only exposing their own ignorance on this topic. And even even their own pride, they're showing that. And their, their pride is blinding them to their ignorance. They, they're not going to think that they're ignorant. You know, they're not going to think that there might be something that they don't know. Um, but when they say that there's absolutely no biblical precedence for uh, a rapture, then you know that that's wrong because we just looked at several examples of at least some individuals having uh, this kind of experience. So, you know, prideful people typically are not going to have the humility to admit a possibility that they might not know enough about a topic to exclaim about it with such certainty. But we see that exact type of thing uh, a lot online today. And th this is why it's really important for us to look at the strongest arguments from all side of an issue and weigh them out to see uh, what is more consistent as a whole, biblically. You know, doing that is actually what eventually convinced me that the pre-tribulation rapture view uh, is correct. Now, not everyone's going to agree with me on that, and that's totally fine, and I'm sure there's still some things that I don't know. But it is certainly not something that we should divide over or use an excuse to hurl insults or accusations at one another. Uh, we see this online quite a bit, and you see it from all sides. And I saw it myself personally from all sides because I can point back to times in my life where at one time or another, I held each and every one of the, one of the rapture views. So, uh, you know, when I was, when I was just a little kid, I didn't know much about it. And I, I, you know, I was brought up with pre-trib. I moved from pre-trib to, I believe, uh, mid-trib. I was that for a while. Then, um, for a little while, I, I went to post-trib. Then I was pre-wrath for a while. And then for a brief time, I, I entertained the idea there might be multiple raptures. Then after, uh, after all that, I got kind of so sick of it that uh, I just assumed there was no rapture. You know, there's no rapture. There's only a resurrection. There's only Jesus Christ coming back. The rapture is a made-up doctrine. You know, I, I was in that camp for a while. And then after a while, uh, after that, I finally kind of laid it all down and, and took the pan-trib view, which is basically, I don't know what it's going to be, but it'll all pan out. You've probably heard that before. So I was that for a long time. Many of you are there. And, and the reason that I was there was because I was sick of the fighting. That was the main reason. It wasn't anything having to do with my own ignorance or, which I had plenty of ignorance, but it wasn't, it wasn't anything to do with a lack of information or, uh, I, I was making an emotional decision. I was sick of the fighting. You know, by this point, I had come to a place where, uh, I, I didn't want to be an online troll anymore. Uh, and when I held any one of the views, uh, before in my life, each one of those views, I would, I, I basically would think that other Christians of other views weren't really Christian, or they weren't as smart as I was, or, you know, they weren't as enlightened as I was, or I was clearly smarter than them. And, you know, how, how could such a stupid Christian believe in such a stupid thing like the preacher of rapture? I used to think all these things. And it was horrifically prideful. Uh, but that, that's, that's what I did. And so God knocked me off of my pride pedestal, and I fell hard. And I, I had to, you know, I had to really learn. I had to learn to keep my pride in check. And then after that, Finally, uh, once I was able to research this topic with with clarity and not through prideful eyes, not through uh, this 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 kind of veneer of of pride in front of in front of my eyes, once I was able to actually view it clearly and listen to what people are saying, then I was finally able to weigh out all of the arguments on my own, and to that th this is when I came to the determination. Uh, that the pre-tribulation rapture view is the clearest. It's, it's the one that uh, makes the most sense when you take the Bible as a whole. And I'm not saying that there aren't things that I still don't understand. There certainly are. But to me right now, uh, that seems to be the one that fits the best. Um, but we do hear a lot of straw man arguments. We hear a lot of insults and accusations from all sides, 
You know, um, it, it's we, we hear it from post-trib, mid-trib, pre-rath, pre-trib, pan-trib, no-trib, uh, multiple-trib, you know, multiple rapture view. You, we, we hear it from all sides against each other. So we hear, we hear these accusations. I'm here to tell you, no, if pre-trib believers are wrong, they will not accept the mark of the beast. That is a straw man, easily disproved by how reluctant pre-trib Christians are typically to putting a chip in their hands, which is available today, or even how suspicious they are about vaccines. So, of course, Christians of all rapture beliefs typically have that in common, but it shows that pre-tribbers would not be so easily taken in by the mark of the beast because they too are very suspicious against vaccines. So they're not, that, that's one of the straw men. That's one of the straw men against pre-tribbers. At the same time, there are straw men against post-tribbers as well. I don't see any evidence that post-tribbers by and large would be more susceptible to engaging in daily sinful behaviors because they don't think Jesus could come back today. That That is another straw man that you hear from pre-tribbers against post-tribbers. I think that's ridiculous. That is a straw man. Both of those claims draw from the same evidence-free logic. You know, it's based more on fear or pride rather than anything real. And maybe there is evidence. Maybe there's statistics to actually show these things. Uh, but so far, I've never come across any that would b bring a legitimate worry to the church. And, and what's interesting is everyone I've ever seen make such claims, none of them have actually provided evidence to back it up. Uh, it, it's, it's just a thought, you know, it, it's just, it's follow, follow the logic kind of thing. Cr Christians assume pre-tribbers are going to be unprepared for the tribulation and lose their faith or post-tribbers are going to party it up in sin every day and not be prepared for Jesus return. You know, we hear all, all of these and we, we also hear a lot from all sides that the other sides are only doing it to sell books. This is another big one. Uh, and we hear this from all sides against all other sides. Now, as an author myself, most of you that follow me, you know that I've written many books, uh, and, and now I'm doing movies now. But as an author, author myself, uh, and one who has been involved in every side of this rapture debate, I've seen it everywhere. And frankly, it's a tired and overused accusation, you know, that, that they're, they're just in it to sell books. Now, could some pre-tribbers or post-tribbers or pre-rathers, could they only believe in that just to sell books or survival gear? You know, I'm sure there are a few examples out there. I have no doubt about it that there are some examples of that out there. However, we don't know the inside of people's heart. We don't know their heart. That doesn't mean that they, re and even if, worst case scenario, even if you come across somebody that the only reason they're teaching uh, a certain rapture belief is to sell books, that doesn't mean that that one Christian represents everyone involved in that specific interpretation. You know, I think it's perfectly reasonable to assume that a Christian who believes in post-trib would want to, if they can, provide some provisions to other brothers and sisters for a very difficult time ahead. I mean, think about it. If you're, if you're pre-trib and you knew that like a, a big storm was coming and you had the means to be able to uh, sell some survival gear, you know, let's say you couldn't get it for free because you had to order it from somewhere else. So you actually had to sell it so you could get it to everybody. Wouldn't you want to do that if, if you were able? Or would you be scared of being called, you, you know, called names or something? You know, well, I don't want people to think that I'm just doing this for the money. So I, maybe I won't, uh, maybe I won't sell this gear. You know, I, I think it's just, I think it's perfectly reasonable to assume that, uh, most, um, post-tribbers, uh, are, are, they believe in the post-trib rapture. And so they want to provide for the body. They want to provide for brothers and sisters in Christ who they believe are going to go through the tribulation. I also think that it's perfectly reasonable to assume a pre-trib rapture believer would, if they can, write books with evidence to support the view uh, in order to provide encouragement to other believers in a fear-driven world. That's why I'm making this video now, and that's why I've been talking about the rapture so so much. I don't care about the views and clicks. I, you know, I don't, I don't care about the selling memberships. I want people to be blessed by it. You know, I do care about it in that way. I want to provide uh, for the church, but at the same time, I'm not doing this to sell memberships. You know, I'm not doing this to sell memberships to the Daily Renegade. I, I am doing this to try to provide encouragement in a fear-driven world. And I believe that most other pre-trib rapture believers are doing the same things. You know, a, a lot of people like to like to mock Tim LaHaye because of the Left Behind series, which that, that is such a, a tired uh, insult. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's seriously incredibly immature. Through whether Whatever you believe on the rapture, whatever you believe on the rapture, 
those books clearly, clearly taught Jesus Christ. And you, you, during that time, I was, I was, uh, I, I believe I was a teenager. Yeah, I was a teenager. I was in, in high school during that time when those books were getting big and I read all of them. Uh, but, during that time, I, I had kids in my school who who were atheists. They they had they had no idea about God, no idea about Jesus, and they were they were uh, at least aware of these books. You you had a whole generation of people reading these, and again, whether you believe in the preacher rapture or not, that doesn't matter as much as uh, who the books are really about, which is Jesus Christ and the salvation of Jesus. And you get that all over in those books. So that to, to the people that like to mock Tim LaHaye, you know, I would ask, what have you done? Have you been able to reach millions of people by by writing something uh, like that and 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 proclaim the the gospel of Jesus Christ? I, I don't think so. So we need to we need to have some humility. You know, you don't have to love Tim LaHaye. You don't have to love the books, but we should at least be humble enough to recognize. You, you know what? Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot of people. It, it made Jesus a, uh, a a national talking point for a, for a long time. It, it was it was a topic of conversation. And, and even today, even today, years and years later, everyone has heard of Left Behind. Doesn't matter if you think the books are corny or the movies are corny. Uh, that that's beside the point. It's too easy to mock when we ourselves have not had that level of impact. You know, I, I just I, I pray to God that that He finds uh, some humble people that. He can he can work through in that same way, uh, and and bring the truth of Jesus to people, regardless what their rapture view is. So, for me, and uh, you know, for a lot of uh, basically every preacher I've ever met, it has nothing to do with selling books. It has to do with providing a service to uh, brothers and sisters in Christ because we're Christian. You know, I I, I would so much rather um, the thing that's first and foremost in my mind is how can I serve the body of Christ. How can I have a servant's heart today? You know, what, what can I do for my brothers and sisters in Christ? If, if I sell books from it, fine. If not, fine. I, I, I don't care. God will, God will take care of that part for me. And I'm telling you, every uh, Christian that I have personally talked to about this, with this topic, with the rapture topic, feels the same way and I have no reason to doubt them. Again, are there Christians out there? Are there people out there who are using this to sell books? Sure. I'm sure there are. I don't know who they are because I can't see inside of anybody's heart and neither can you. So we have to keep that in mind. Anyone can say anyone else holds the beliefs that they have only to sell books. That's why we hear that so much. Everybody, all Christians have been accused of that. Uh, you, you basically can't have a Christian author anymore because Christian authors, every single one of them have been accused of that. They all get accused of it. So what's the solution? Get rid of all Christian authors and we don't have... Uh, we don't have anybody writing books about Christ anymore. Uh, you know, we still have to have preachers, right? We still have to have people go out and spread the gospel. Uh, they just can't write anything down anymore, apparently. So, I mean, it's 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 ridiculous. And when you really look at it for what it is, it's it's solely based on pride. Uh, again, we've 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 heard that accusation so much. You know, they're they're just trying to sell books, and we've heard it from all sides. We and it's not only the rapture. We hear it from uh from all sides of any topic having to do with Christianity. You know, anything, especially in prophecy, but you, you, you see it anywhere. But it, we've heard it, everybody has heard it so much, it's lost its meaning. It's lost its shock value. You know, it's become an overused cliche, you know, like those who will call every, everything racist nowadays. You know, the word eventually loses its meaning when everything is called that. You know, I think instead of casting dispersions or assumptions like that against our brothers and sisters, which, by the way, have never worked because we still have, again, about five to seven different rapture camps today. So those fear-based attacks don't convince anyone to entertain a differing view. They only root a person deeper into the view they already hold. So those accusations don't work anyway. But instead of doing that... I think we should be discussing these things with a genuine sense of wonder and excitement and love for each other. And if we're concerned for the spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters in Christ, let's humbly pray for one another. Let's pray for ourselves in humi hum humility and voice our concerns in truth and respect rather than ignorance and arrogance. No one's saying that we shouldn't talk about this stuff. No one's saying that if we have a concern, we should just be quiet and not voice it. No, we should voice it. But we should do it out of love and respect. And if you are if you if you are not feeling love and respect for the person that you're uh, speaking out against, or, or or that you're that you're trying to help with the truth, that you're trying to uh, rebuke with the truth, then don't say anything. 
because we have enough foundless, just baseless accusations as it is today. Now, there, there are times, there are some times where you do have to call somebody out who you don't know uh, because they're teaching a heresy or because they're actually teaching something that is strictly against the Bible. Um, so, you know, Joel Osteen might be somebody. But, but at the same time, if we call him out, we can't just mock the guy. Uh, because that's not going to do anything. You know, that, that's not going to help. That's, that we're only hurting ourselves. We, we call him out, sure. You know, call out the false teaching, even bring his name into it, which I didn't always agree with that, but I'm, I'm kind of coming around on that. Uh, but do so still in love. Pray for the guy. You know, we should, we should, we should, we should want him to correct his doctrine. You know, uh, we, we should, want to pray for him, we should, we should care enough and even love him enough to pray for him. And I, I don't see that. I see so much hate. People, people say, well, how can, how can you have any love for Joel Osteen? He's, he's, he's fleecing the flock. You know, for one thing, you don't know everything and neither do I. I don't know how much money he personally has. You know, I, I don't know how much money his ministry has. I, I read something the other day that most of the money goes to his ministry. I, there's so much I don't know about it, neither do you. Um, if you think that he shouldn't have a mansion, well, I, is that is that biblical or is that just greed? You know, is that just jealousy? See, I don't know. But what I do know is when somebody doesn't treat these things in love, I don't have a lot of confidence that they're standing on solid spiritual ground, even if their accusations are correct. Um, but especially when it comes to non-salvational issues like the rapture. And you, I've, I've, I'm seeing a resurgence in this today. Uh, and it's it's sprung up again where Christians are at each other's throats online uh, about this topic, and they think that their own personal view, differing with another Christian's view, is cause to uh, basically throw all of Jesus' teachings out the window about love and respect and loving your brothers and um, you, you, you know leading the flock and all, all, all of this stuff. Throw, uh, throw out all of his teachings. We don't need those anymore because we have a difference about the rapture. And to me, again, I see I see that, and then I think that's not solid spiritual ground. What is going on with the church today where we are so easily fooled into hating each other? And that's what it is. We're fooled into it. We're easily tricked into it. You know, we're so busy worrying, you know, thinking other Christians are being tricked by the rapture. That's not even the point. We're all being tricked into hating each other. We're all being tricked into falling into pride because we're all at each other's throats over this. The, the thing is, we, we, even if we disagree, we should still be talking to one another. You know, we should still be loving and, and fellowshipping with one another, uh, even if we have disagreements in what the timing of the rapture is. You know, let's, let's all talk about our best arguments and bring them together. And if we disagree, fine. You know, if we don't talk to each other, we're going to naturally and sinfully assume all sorts of nasty things about each other. That is the fallen state of man. And that's what we've been doing since the fall itself. That's why people are at each other's throats on the rapture thing, because no, nobody, we, we don't, by and large, we don't talk to each other about it. We hurl insults, we accuse, we have um, divisive tones in, in the way that we type things out. We're mean and nasty. There's, there's no genuine sense of, of love or wonder or, or even concern, you know, we we don't we we just we don't see that typically, and people would rather fall into their own pride than find out what the truth is, and, and that that is a big problem. So for all of you, I'm telling you, do not fall into that trap. Whatever your rapture belief is, don't fall in the trap of using that as a weapon against your brothers and sisters. The enemy is in our camp, and the enemy is trying to get us to fight each other. Don't let him do it. Uh, all right, so wrapping all that up, while in one sense, uh, Revelation 4.1 is not describing the rapture of the church, in another sense, it could be at least a picture of the rapture. Uh, so we need to talk about that. And th this is where the study gets really, really interesting. So John was uh, incredibly special, obviously, but what made him special, one of the things that made him really special, is he was, uh, at the time of this writing of Revelation, he was the last living apostle during that time. And as the last living apostle, he got to experience this amazing revelation of heaven and the future. Last living apostle, this amazing experience of, of heaven. Now, similarly, there is a final generation of Christians 
there's going to be a generation that they're the last ones. Hopefully this isn't too far in the future. Hopefully our current generation uh, is this generation. But there is a, a last generation that will experience the actual rapture. So just like John was the last apostle of his time, uh, there could be, uh, there, there is a last generation that'll experience the rapture. So that, that's one connective point. But we also have John 14, 1 through 3, uh, that talks about the rapture. And in my opinion, and it's, it's the opinion of, uh, many others as well. It, it, this isn't new just to me. This isn't, you know, I've, I've, other people have talked about it. Actually, uh, Andy Woods, Pastor Andy Woods has an excellent, uh, rapture series. And he talks about this. He also talks a little bit about this in his Revelation series as well. But you just look up Pastor Andy Wood's Rapture uh, and you'll find it. But in my opinion and in the opinion of uh, many others who are much smarter than me, John 14, 1 through 3, this is one of the many uh, things that convinced me that the other Rapture views don't work in totality with the Bible. Uh, so that's a bold claim for me to make. Let's read it. Uh, John 14, 1 through 3 says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Uh, now, this is in the upper room. This is after Jesus' resurrection. Uh, he, he comes to the dis, dis, disheartened uh, apostles and gives them this amazing promise and tells them the way, tells them that he is the way for this. Not many people would say that this is a rapture verse, but I'm hoping to explain to you um, how it actually is. Where is the Father's house? Let's ask ourselves that. Where is the Father's house? heaven, right? Obviously. You know, and there's many passages that speak of that. I could go through them, but that's kind of pointless because I think we all know that uh, the Father's house is in heaven. And this is also where Jesus ascended. So if the Father's house is in heaven, where are these rooms that Jesus is preparing for us? Jesus goes to prepare rooms for us, to prepare a place. In his Father's house are many rooms and he goes to prepare a place. Where, where is he going? Where is his Father's house? Obviously, again, heaven, right? I don't think many people would dispute that. There are some allegorists that would, but uh, not many, not many serious students of the Bible would um, actually contend against that. So when Jesus comes again to take us to Himself, where will that be? Now, the post-trib believer would have to say the earth, but with this verse, uh, it's inconsistent to say that. So if the post-trib view was correct, these rooms would go unused because when Jesus returns to the earth, we would go up to meet him as he's descending. You know, we would meet in the air. The, the post-tribs agree with that. Uh, we would meet in the air as Jesus is descending and we're going up. Um, uh, but then we would come right back down to the earth uh, with Jesus. Uh, and there's but but the thing is, there's no trip to heaven here. There's no need for these rooms in the post-trib view. Uh, in fact, we don't even see the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven and down to the earth until Revelation 21, which is after the thousand-year reign of Jesus. Uh, this is after the judgment of the world, after the new heavens and new earth. So the post-trib view would have a problem here. You know, what is John 14 talking about? Now, some get around this by trying to allegorize it, you know, saying that it means something other than what it says. But let's look at it again. In verse two, for, for one thing, he's saying, let your hearts, uh, let not your hearts be troubled. In verse one, believe in God, believe also in me. Verse two, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you will, you may be also. That doesn't make sense unless it's pre-trib. Because in the post-trib view, when do these rooms ever get used? We would be coming back, you know, we, we would meet Jesus in the air as he's descending back to the earth. And we would, we would meet him in the air and come down to earth with him. Uh, and these rooms would remain in heaven unused because again we don't see the new Jerusalem we don't see we don't see that heavenly city descending down on the earth until the new heavens and new earth anyway 
So again, you know, it, it, it's inconsistent. Some get around it by allegorizing it and saying that it means something other than what it means. But here, Jesus says that if it were not so, he wouldn't even have said it. Now, with a qualification like that, do we really think Jesus is trying to be unclear or allegorical? Do we think that this is something Jesus intends us to read in our own interpretations? Or is he being absolutely clear and making a wonderful promise to us? You know, it only makes sense that the Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled literally, were fulfilled seriously. They weren't fulfilled all allegorically. You know, no, nobody had to read their own interpretations into it. We can go back and see how all the past prophecies were fulfilled. It doesn't make sense that the future ones are going to be who knows what. You know, we can read whatever we want into them. Now, this is one of the reasons why I believe the pre-trib view fits best with this passage, as we uh, believe that we will be taken to heaven to live in these rooms for at least seven years, maybe a little longer, depending how long of a span of time there is between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. After the seven years, we return with Christ to rule and reign on earth with him as our king. So it fits without having to redefine the words and promises of Jesus. We don't have to allegorize anything. We don't have to say, well, that's not really what it says. You know, we don't have to do any of that. We can just read it for what Jesus said plainly, and we can just take it at face value, and we can trust in his promise as a pre-trib rapture believer. And when you actually look at uh, all, all of the rapture verses, all of the verses that are used, all of the passages, all of the teachings of the entire Bible that point to this, this, this amazing time in the future of the church, uh, it is the most consistent and plainly understandable view there is of all the available rapture views, including no rapture, including the view that there isn't a rapture at all. So th this is just one reason, one of many uh, one of many reasons why I believe the pre-trib rapture view fits the best. Again, it's nothing I'm going to fight about. I'm not going to argue about it. I will delete uh, comments if somebody's being verbally abusive about it. Uh, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna stand for that. Um, and I don't hold so tightly to that that I would uh, deny somebody fellowship over it. You know, I will deny somebody fellowship with me if they're going to be prideful and arrogant and basically be a jerk and think that. Uh, you know, they're, 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 they're better in, in some way because they have a more sophisticated rapture view and, you know, they're looking down their nose at everything. I, I can't stand that stuff. Uh, that's so anti-Christian, you know, that's so prideful. It, it's really satanic, that, that attitude. Um, and I don't like that attitude from pre-tribbers either. You, you know, I, I personally don't see it as much in the pre-trib camp. And again, I have been around the block. I have been in, uh, involved in all the camps, you know, at one time or another. Uh, I see it way more from the other camps. And that kind of is another reason that leads me to think, well, you know, maybe there is actually some truth to this uh, because of how violently it's attacked. But um, but again, uh, I, I would never say that like all pre-tribbers are just wonderful and benevolent. There there are some there's some jerks everywhere. You get jerks everywhere. And I also would never say that, you know, the other views, they're all jerks. You, you know, you got, you got some good people there too. I, a lot of my friends, a lot, actually, I think of, uh, of all of my friends in ministry that are my age, uh, around my age, I think I'm the only pre-tribber. I, I don't think, I don't think a single one, I think most of them are pre-wrath. Um, there, there's a couple of post-tribbers. Uh, but I think by and large, I, I, I can't think of anybody my age, I might be missing somebody. So I, I don't want to say it as like a definite blanket statement, but I, I don't, I don't know of anybody my age, uh, who has, who is, who, who is definitely pre-trib. I got a lot of friends my age who haven't talked about it. So, uh, there very well could be some in ministry that are pre-trib and it's just not a focal point of their ministry. And that's totally fine. Um, but anyway, without going too far down that rabbit hole, you know, we can see that the events of Revelation 4.1, what happened to John, it's an example or, or a type or a shadow of the real rapture that is yet to take place. So, is Revelation 4 the rapture? Well, it's yes and no, in a way. Now, another thing that's really interesting to throw out here in the book of Revelation, before this point that John is caught up to heaven, the word church as in the Christian church, the body of Christ, the church, that word in the first uh, three chapters of Revelation, right before this point, is used 19 times. After this point in Revelation, all the rest of the many, many, many chapters, 20, 20 some odd chapters, 21, 22, uh, but out of all of those chapters, 
Not once is that word church used anymore. Not until Jesus is wrapping up his conclusion at the very end of the book and saying to preach these things to the churches. Uh, but besides that, the rest of the Bible, you don't see the church on the earth. During the events of the tribulation that's to take place on the earth, the church is not present. Now, saints are present, but that word has referred to Old Testament believers, you know, which makes sense because the book of Revelation really does center around Israel, not the church. This is how uh, Israel will be brought back to repentance on a national level. This is actually why they need the testimony of the 144,000 Jews to bring about this uh, repentance instead of the church. Jesus isn't telling the churches in the first three chapters that they need to go get their act together because they need to preach the gospel around the world during the tribulation. You know, our time as the church for that is now. And during that final week of Daniel that's still promised to, uh, to Israel, that final week, it's not the church it's not the church. It'll be the job of believing Jews to do it, the, the Jews that come to belief after the rapture, because all the Messianic Jews that we have today will be in the rapture as well with us, because we're all Christian. You know, we're, we're, there's no more Jew or Gentile in that sense in the church. We're, we're, we're all Christian. So it'll be believing Jews who come to repentance after, sometime after the rapture. You know, otherwise, it would be the responsibility of the church. And how do we know that? We know that because what's the Great Commission? You know, Jesus uh, laid that responsibility at our feet that we need to go preach the gospel to the world. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because some would say, well, we're not doing a good job of it. You know, in some cases, I would agree. Some cases, I wouldn't agree. But uh, but that doesn't matter. Jesus knew that when he gave the Great Commission, right? He knew that, that you know, whatever job we end up doing, that's the job that we would do. And he knew that and still gave us the Great Commission. So if he was preparing us to continue to do that, the Great Commission and the Tribulation, this would be the job of the church. But it's not. It's the job of believing Jews in Israel, the 144,000. This task isn't given to the church because the church isn't on earth at this time. And that's why you don't see that word. You don't see the church uh, after after chapter 3, uh, from, from chapter 4 and on. You don't see the church on earth. Uh, only um, only The only thing that you see as far as, as Christian are post-rapture converts, people who came to a belief in Christ sometime after uh, the rapture of the church. And when I say post-rapture converts, I'm not saying post-trib rapture believers. Two different things. Post-trib or, you know, they'll, whether they know it or not, on this side of the rapture, they're going to be caught up too. You know, they'll, they'll be in the rapture. The, the cool thing about the rapture is you don't have to even believe in the rapture to be, uh, to be able to take part in the rapture. So that's exciting. You know, that's, that's great. That, that shows an amazing level of grace from God. Uh, you, but you do have to believe in Jesus. Uh, so, you know, in, in the pre-trib view, post-tribbers are going to be caught up too. Not a problem. Now, um, to give more evidence to this uh, about the, the church, we can look at the seven lamps and the 24 elders in heaven as evidenced by the church being raptured by this time. So in the beginning of Revelation, the very beginning, um, John describes seeing seven lamps in front of him with Jesus. Remember that? Uh, we didn't look at it today, but you can go back and read that. Um, and there's, he has seven stars in his hand, which represent the angels of the churches or the, the leaders in the churches. These would be like the pastors of the churches. These are, these are human messengers, not necessarily spiritual angels. Uh, but then you have these seven lamps, and the seven lamps represent the seven churches that John is to write to. So we see those with Jesus, you know, in front of John, uh, there, you, you, on earth, right? Now, it's right there on earth, these seven lamps in front of John. Before he's taken to heaven, uh, Jesus tells John, again, these lamps are the seven churches that he must write to. The lamps represent seven Christian churches. And again, we get that from Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. Now, after John is caught up in Revelation 4, we see these lamps again, but now they're in heaven. Revelation 4, 5b says, seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So this is when the restrainer is removed that we read about uh, from, from Paul, that the, the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. And for a variety of reasons that we don't have time to get into, we can show that. But the Holy Spirit, which is uh, these seven lamps and also, uh, or these seven spirits of God and also represent the churches as the Holy Spirit within believers, 
Uh, and, and you might think, well, which is it? Do these lamps represent the churches or do they represent the seven spirits of God, the Holy Spirit? They, it represents all of it because they're all connected. They're all, they're all intertwined because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us as Christians. So when the Holy Spirit is, when the restrainer is removed, when the Holy Spirit is, is caught up, we come along with it, you know, because we're, we're entwined like that. We're connected. Uh, so we see that the Holy Spirit within believers is caught up to heaven and, uh, and we, we come up with it. That, that's, that's the mechanism by which we're caught up to heaven. And now, now we see these lamps in heaven. That's why you see them in heaven in chapter four. Um, now the seven spirits of God, that's another really interesting study that we'll have to save in full for another time. But we can, uh, look briefly at Isaiah 11.2. To see these seven spirits, which are which, which are together the fullness of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah eleven two says, "And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord." So uh, we have the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Those seven spirits. Now, some have also equated this with Romans 12, 6 through 8, which tells us of some of the gifts that Christians can operate in, which are uh, prophecy, servitude, teaching, encouragement, contribution, leadership, and mercy. Now, it would be really interesting to do an in-depth study of all of those in relation to the problems of the seven churches and see if there's any correlations here. Like maybe the problems of the seven churches are due to a lacking in the seven spirits of God, and that lacking could be solved by using these seven gifts. You know, it'd be really interesting to see if there could be a direct one-to-one -one connections with each of these, uh, but we will have to save that for another time. Um, so getting back to our study here in Revelation, we see that those seven lamps are now before the throne of God. Now also, when we read about the 24 elders, their description is exactly the same as what Jesus promises to the Christian churches in the first three chapters of Revelation. We see crowns, Revelation 2.10, white garments, Revelation 3.5, thrones, Revelation 3.21, these are all things that Jesus promised to us as Christians. Also, that word elder, that's a word used in the New Testament to refer to authorities or leaders in the Christian church, such as in Acts 15. Now, we have a lot more to talk about about these 24 elders. There's a lot more to get into. Who they are, who they aren't, uh, what the number 24 is all about, um, plus about that sea of glass, like crystal, that John saw in front of the throne, and, uh, and so much more. I want to talk about the rapture itself and how there's actually a quantum physics understanding of how fast this thing is going to be. We, we have so much more to talk about, but we're going to have to do that in the members-only section of this episode. So you can get the rest of this episode right now by becoming a member today at dailyrenegade.com. Uh, dailyrenegade.com is the place to go. You can find this episode in the latest video section or under JPD Weekly if it's been a while since this has aired. Uh, you'll, you'll have direct access to not only this, but to all full episodes, plus many others, uh, many other episodes um, that we have not been able to uh, offer anywhere else. So you'll want to make sure that uh, you go to dailyrenegade.com to get this. It's the only place that all of this stuff is available. Become a member today. Join the family. Dailyrenegade.com. <laughs> Daily I think that's a sign. I've said it uh, one too many times in uh, this uh, uh, midpoint of this episode. So with that, uh, members, hang on the line. We got so much more to talk to. Really exciting stuff. Everyone else viewing for free, thank you so much. Uh, and until next time, love you all. Take care and God bless.